Listening Dog Media. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Offside Rule Exclusives. A Liverpool and Watford legend with nearly 80 caps for England, John Barnes is widely regarded as one of the greatest talents of his time. Now a strong advocate of fighting racism in and out of the game, John joined me, Kate Borsay, for a look back at his career and to discuss the lasting impact he can make in football today. The Offside Rule Exclusives with Kate Borsay. Well, the offside rule is in the home of John Barnes. We're in Cheshire. We're in a really nice, white, peaceful room on some white sofas. It's actually amazing because John's got three kids. I don't know how these sofas stay so clean, John. We recover them. (laughs) Lots of times. Recover and recover. (laughs) And it's the world. Don't let people, don't mislead people into thinking it's Cheshire near Manchester because Liverpoolians will get very I across see. if you talk okay. about Cheshire. So technically it's West Cheshire, but it's the Wirral. This is Merseyside. It is. Well, yeah, and that's incredibly apt. So I feel, I feel good that we're on Merseyside. Yeah. Very fitting for this. And we walked into John's house and I saw a Christmas tree and you are the <laughs> first house I've been into. I mean, not, not a small Christmas tree either, John. Well, there are three more to go up. <laughs> My wife, we are, we've had a Christmas tree for two weeks ago. My wife loves Christmas from September. So so we are now, what, the 22nd of November that we're recording this and the trees have been up for two weeks already. Yeah. So I'm not a real Christmassy person. So when my wife says to me that we need four Christmas trees up by the 12th of November, is she lying to me? That's, that doesn't normally happen then in normal Why is it the 12th? House. Is there something definite about well, it? Well, if she had her way, it'd be October. Okay. I think she's made up the 12th just to convince me that that is an official thing. So of course, it has to be the 12th. And I'm glad that you're here now to tell me that's not that's not normal because I've been telling her for years that you're not a normal person when it comes to Christmas because she starts getting ready in September and she loves Christmas. So we are going to have four Christmas trees up and one outside. So thanks for filling me in that that is not normal. <laughs> Do you get into Christmas and all that? Are you are you you're basically forced to, aren't you, because of your wife? Well, and also because of the children, and of course yeah. having 
seven children aged between 35 and nine. And for me, that's what Christmas is all about, kids. Yeah. You know, having fun and stuff like that. So for the last, obviously, 30-odd years, when you have a child, Christmas is so special. So, you know, and, and because my children, a lot of them are spaced out in between four and five years by the time one's old enough to know. I don't know whether I should actually say this, but, you know, some people may feel that Christmas is not real. Um, Santa Claus <laughs> is not real. Um, obviously, he is. But by the time a child is old enough to maybe think that, yeah. another one has come along. So therefore, we have to, you know, make sure that Christmas is real. So Christmas has been real for the last 30 odd years in the house. So you've, yeah, this is this is amazing, really. I thought that your older kids would be in their 20s without, without working it out properly. Well, some of them are. <laughs> but your oldest <laughs> is 35. 35, yeah. He may be 36. But, you know, when you have seven kids, you can't really keep a track on the exact age. And what do your older kids do? Well, my eldest one is a plastic surgeon. He's a, he's a, a not, no, he doesn't do cosmetic surgery, car crashes and burns. He's a, he's got a fellowship at Guides and St. Thomas's, so he's got his consultancy coming up. My other daughter is a doctor in Manchester. My son is a banker in London. He works for Standard Chartered. He got a first in maths at Leeds, so he's very bright. And my other daughter from her first marriage, she's an estate agent, she's 22, Jasmine, and then the three little ones are 15 and 13 and um, So they're doing nine. exams and school and stuff. Yeah. You've got some clever kids because that, that older crop of kids, I mean, that is like dream, well, dream children. Well, the most important thing for me always has been an education. Even when I was a footballer, if I had an education, maybe I would have I been a footballer, but I've always felt that that's the most important thing for children. So as much as both of my boys love football, when they were eight and nine and 10 and yeah. you know, wanted to be a professional footballer and stuff like that, I always insisted on them getting a good education yeah. and if they then wanted to continue and follow whatever sporting dream they had then that's fine but education always came first did any of your kids sort of follow the football path my in terms s- of show any skill or anything my son jordan did he, i mean he played for england universities and he played at chester and tranmere on the 17s and stuff so my son could have been a professional footballer maybe not at the highest level but you know um, he decided to be a banker your love of education particularly in terms of i guess values education is a value to you did that come from your dad? Is that is that something sort of closely connected to your upbringing, well, not just, your mother and not father? Not just my dad. I mean, the whole family. I mean, my family, my, 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 in fact, my mother decided at 69 to do a law degree. 69. Oh, I like this woman. 69. So when she got to 73, she started practicing as a barrister. She's now a barrister in Jamaica at 85, still practicing. She did a degree, a journalism degree in her 20s. And, you know, but my whole family, education has been a big part of my my, my cousins. My, 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 we've got three or four orthopedic surgeons, doctors, they're lawyers, they're bankers. So I'm the only one who didn't go down that route. But it really from that, so therefore from a... a point of view growing up my sister was doing it she's a teacher she's doing a phd my other sister was a lawyer so education has always been a big part of my family yeah growing up in jamaica i'm not just talking about my mom and my dad and my my, my sisters i'm talking about cousins and Everyone. relatives everybody yeah so that's been a big part of our life uh and i always feel that you know I, if my son could have guaranteed me that he was going to be Lionel messi earning 500 grand a week i'll say leave school at 10 <laughs> but unfortunately, most parents believe that that's what their son is going to be. So therefore, they say, don't concentrate on an education. And the reality is 99% of children aren't going to even make it as professional footballers. You grew up in Jamaica. How did you get round this love of education within your family and this maybe presumption, I don't know, that you'd go on and achieve academically? How did the football mix in with that? How were you able to blend both? Well, my father... He was a colonel in the, in, the, in the Jamaican Army. He was second in command of the Jamaican Army. He went to Sandhurst. Um, his classmate was Andrew Parker Bolt, funny enough, um, coming wow. his husband. So my dad um, was an army officer. And then he got sent to England when I was 12 years old, just coming up to 13, as military attache. So it was going to be a four-year posting. So I knew I was coming to England at the age 12, 13. At the age of 17, I'm going to go back to Jamaica, which means that any middle-class Jamaican 
will then go to America to go to university. That's okay. what normally happens. Yeah. So, but I'm in England. I'm playing football because I love football. I played football in Jamaica. My dad played football. I'm going to school, not really paying much attention to school. My sisters obviously got did well in the GCSEs, A-levels, and went to university and stuff. And then when I was 17, um, I, I, we knew um, one of the coaches at Howard University in Washington. Mm-hmm. So I got offered a football scholarship or a football scholarship would have been offered to me mm-hmm. to go to Howard which is what I would have done. Yeah. And probably six months before my mom and dad were going to go back and we're all going to go back, I was playing football for a team called Sudbury Court in near Wembley, funnily enough. And a, a taxi driver knew a scout. The scout came to watch me, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know. Then they asked me to train at Watford and then they offered me a contract to stay. So that is when, that's the first time I thought about being a professional footballer. I knew I would always play football. I was going to go to America. Had I gone back to Jamaica, I would have played football in Jamaica. Yeah. So then that route in terms of either education or university was then put on the back burner i can't say it was put on it, it, it was it was never going to happen because of course as a 17 year old boy as much as you've signed for a professional club it may not work out you and don't what know, are you do you? Do? yeah but i got into the first team within a month six weeks that i was playing for england on the 21s when i was 18 a year later i was playing for england at 19 so i think that you know it, it worked out for me and it was this in fact, so much about your early career, so much happened so quickly, I guess. When you joined Watford, they were on that trajectory upwards from sort of fourth, fourth to first division. And they were already most of the way there. Yes. And I think you are probably the catalyst or the missing piece, I suppose, that then allowed them to come up to the first division. There was that little bit of spark needed. It wasn't. That's, that's not necessarily, necessarily true. Looking back, people may think that because it was myself as a 17-year-old, Nigel Callan as an 18-year-old, Steve Terry and, and, and Kenny Jackett as 19-year-olds. But you look at young players now who are considered to be superstars and you see a young player coming in and he's 18 years old and he costs 50 million pounds and he's a great player. It wasn't like that back then. I wasn't a, I wasn't a young superstar kid because six months earlier, no one had heard of me. And when I played for the team, the main players were still the, the players who were playing in the fourth division. Yeah. I was just a young player who had to get into the team. It wasn't like, here's John Barnes, the star, he's going to catapult <laughs> us there. No, there was no pressure on me because I wasn't expected to stay, into the, stay in the team. And when I played, yes. But, you know, when you have a, a, a young superstar, Michael Owen, for example, who came into the team, it wasn't like that at all. No. I still had to have the humility, the respect for the, my senior teammates, even if they weren't in the team, the ones on the bench, the ones, the substitutes. I couldn't walk around as if I'm some kind of superstar. And the fans didn't treat me that way. Graham Taylor certainly didn't treat me that way. So... I was definitely not the catalyst for that. It may have happened because you could argue that the players from the fourth division were the catalyst because they yeah, were still... Because, what because a lot of the did. work had been done by then. Not only that, but even in terms of, well, by the time we came up to the top division, we still had 90% of the players who were in the fourth division and we finished second in the league to Liverpool. That wasn't down to me. I mean, Luther Blissett, who was a top scorer, played in the fourth division. You know, a lot of these players who were, who then, Kenny Jackett went to play for Wales, he played in the team in the fourth but division. You certainly had your opportunity and maybe more of an opportunity than you would have done had you gone to another club. Absolutely. And that's not only in terms of the opportunity I would have had, in terms of the, I believe the player I would have been, the player I became, the person I became, because I always say I would hate to have gone to a club like Liverpool when I was a 17-year-old. Because as a 17-year-old, I was brought up in the right way in terms of respect, humility, recognising the need for you to respect the fans and to put back into the community at Watford. Because Watford football club needed its fans for its support so therefore we had to give 
it was in our contract that we had 14 hours a week to, to, to designate it for community service, which means something different now. Not, not that kind of community service, <laughs> which meant that we had to go to charities, to schools. We had to get engaged with the community. Whereas with any other club like Liverpool or Manchester United, a huge club with fans all over the world, you don't necessarily have to do much in the community. Yeah. So I was really brought up in that particular way for six years. As much as even I'm now playing for England at 19, I was still a Watford still boy who was still spending hours. the time yeah. in the community and working with the community. Then coming to Liverpool at 23 and seeing what real football is about, mainly going out and getting drunk and carrying on because that's what the culture was back then. But at Watford, it wasn't that because we had a manager like Graham Taylor who was very strict. So we were we were conditioned yeah. to, to in a real professional environment. At Liverpool, they normally had senior players and they allowed you to do whatever you wanted. So therefore, it's not a good environment for young players who need to be nurtured, who need needs, to be taught what to do. Because at Liverpool, be they didn't tell you what to do. They said, go and do what you want. But when you come to play football, you play football. You train well, you do what you want. But if you want to come in at six in the morning after a night out, whereas with Graham Taylor, you would never even dream of doing that. That's why I'm so happy that my first six years were at a club like Watford. Yeah. So by the time I got to Liverpool at 23, playing for England for four years, already been in the top division for six years, I'd shown that I had the level of consistency to then handle the pressure of being at a top club. Yeah. Whereas you go there at 17, you see inconsistencies in young players. And at a club like Liverpool, you can't afford to be inconsistent because well, you have to win. it's maturity as well, isn't it? And Absolutely. Tell me about the influence that Graham Taylor had on you. You, you mentioned he was very strict. Yeah. Well, once again, it was very similar to my father. Because, and, and, and don't forget, um, as we're growing up as children and, and our parents are telling us to do things, we fight against it and we hate it and we want to be have freedom and fun. And because I was a bit free-spirited, my sisters were very good. Um, I was free-spirited when I came to London. I was forever getting into little mischief. I was Scrapes. never naughty, but getting into mischief in terms of coming in late, not wanting to do my homework, not going out, just lying to my parents about where I am and going to parties and saying, what's John somebody's Barnes, house. Li- hang on, lying? Well, Scrapes, fibbing. coming in late? No, no, no scrapes. Never, no fighting at all. Okay. It's more to do with, you know, London life with my, my friends at 14, Larging 15 it. years old. Larging it at 14, 15. Who were at 100 Club in Oxford Street and going to nightclubs <gasps> because my friends were allowed to go out at 14 and 15 to nightclubs. I, I necessarily I, wasn't. I, I struggle to imagine this because you, you are quite a dis- disciplinarian with your kids now yeah but but, but you obviously no, had that period why, yeah no because obviously if you were allowed to push the boundaries you do and that's why i thank my parents for it now but at the time it was like why can't my friends can come in at five in the morning and blah 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 so i remember once you know i'd always had to say to my mom that i'm staying at their house and then we go out and i'll come in and then <laughs> i remember once we went to this party and my mom phoned up where we we're supposed to be two o'clock in the morning lived in golders green and my friends lived in by Warren Street, which is central. Warren yeah. Street is right by the West End. So we're always in the West End. And I remember we say, I'm staying at Mark's house with my best friend and he lived just off from Warren Street. And at nine o'clock, my mom phoned and said, oh, you know, are they okay? Everyone think okay? And his mom went, oh, no, no, no. They're, they've gone to a party. They're not coming in tonight. And I don't know. So she went, man, and I don't know how she managed to get the number. We're at a party in Crystal Palace. <gasps> it wasn't a party. There's about four, four people there, two boys and two girls. We were about 15. Oh, I see. So my mom and dad <laughs> managed to get hold of them and said, we're coming to get you. So they drove all the way to Crystal Palace, which is embarrassing enough for your mom to. Yeah. But this was always happening. So I was, I was, I remember there's a nightclub called, it was called Giovanni's in Hampstead. <laughs> and um, we're in this nightclub. And my mom said, come on, at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. 12 o'clock was about 15. And uh, obviously I would always like wait till, I mean, you've got to be a bit later. My friends yeah. could stay out to work. I was allowance. like, oh, I've got a bit of a headache, so I'm just leaving. So I really, I'm not like my mum said to come home. And as I came out of the nightclub, she was driving in in her dressing gown to come into the <laughs> nightclub. So fortunately, I managed to just get out into the car park and jump in the car quickly. And I'm going, so that I would never be able to do that now. Drive. So this was always happening. <laughs> but as much as I fought against it, it, it I, I, I remembered and I understood in later life that this is the way you have to be with your children. So as much as, and as, as you know, as a, as a, they probably did the same thing when they were young. And as a parent, as you know, it's more about doing, do what I say, not what I did yeah. or what I do. 
So I understood. Do your kids know this backstory of yours? They do. It's too and late course, now, John. Every, no, but every time I see my, 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 every time my mom comes all the time and she tells them all the stories. So yeah, everybody knows the stories. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether they know it or not. They do what I say. End of story. The Offside Rule Exclusives. That period at, at Watford, as you've suggested, you know, was such a great foundation for you, I guess, as a person under the tutelage of Graham Taylor, not just for football, but, but you know, also in terms of your attitude towards life and your professionalism. And then I guess for the first time in your football career, you come to a point where you are in charge of making the decision about what to do next. Just talk about that period where you're at Watford as a change of manager and you're thinking that this is the time for you to move. Well, that is where Graham Taylor was such a fantastic man. When people look at me and the way I play, and I say I play in a, in, with a freedom and, 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 and you know with no responsibility, never, never. When I first came to England and I played for my Stowe Boys Club, we played on a fantastic team, we won the National Five-A-Side Championships. I was always the player I am, not now obviously, but when I played. But because the team were so good, we'd win matches six and seven and eight and nine nil, no one wanted to be a defender. So I was a centre-back. I was never a centre-back, but I played there for four years. Wow. So before I went to Sudbury Court and I went straight onto the wing and became... And was the player I was. I was yeah. always that player ever since I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten. At 12 years old, I've come to England and I'm playing for this club. And these boys are fantastic, but no one wants to be at the back. So I said, I'll play there. I'm not a defender, but I played there for four years because I played with responsibility. Then when I went to Sudbury Court, my first game is on the left wing. And I played as if I've played all the time. <laughs> so the coaches knew that in me, but they saw responsibility in me. And Graham Taylor did. So when people talk to me about the freedom of spirit and whatever. I always played with responsibility. Even if I looked as if I was being a flamboyant maverick, my first and foremost responsibility was for the team. Mm. So I always felt that. I always felt that. So that's what people don't understand about me, even at Liverpool. And the second thing, when he's, to answer your question, is I would have been happy. And this is why Watford was such a great club with Graham Taylor. It was a family and I grew up with them. And it's my first professional club. I'd love to stay there my whole career. And I just felt, because don't forget, the trajectory we were on, we got into the top division. Then we finished second. We got to the cup final. We lost. We got to the quarterfinals of the UEFA Cup. Watford is now going to be a huge club forever. So I'm, I'm going to stay here for mm. Watford. And I love living in the area. I love the people. I like the character whereby it's humility and the community spirit. I'm there forever. I never thought I had to leave. Graham Taylor told me I had to leave. Graham Taylor may have known that he was moving on and he understood because he's an experienced man so he knows this is a period of time where this is happening for Watford they're not a big club like Liverpool even an Arsenal or Tottenham who are going to be there forever mm. this is not going to last once he goes once the players get older new things happen Watford aren't going to be the club they are I didn't know that Graham Taylor said to me now is the time to go he said to me which is strange because you would think that a manager would want to keep the players at the club yeah. his best players but because he felt the same thing with Luther, Luther Blissett when he went to AC Milan why, he said I can't keep Luther why keep him now you want to keep your best players because I have to do what's right for his boys mm. because he said that yes it's my team but I have to be respectful and understanding that these are my players as well and I want what's right for them so he said to me Liverpool is going to come in for me and you're going to go to Liverpool that's the club you are going to go to I obviously, when it became apparent, I was delighted to go. But if he had said, <laughs> sign a new contract for Watford for 10 years and stay, I would have done that. So Graham Taylor really was an honourable man in not just caring about the club, but also caring about the players mm. who played for the clubs and knowing for their careers to develop. Nigel Cannon went to Aston Villa. I left. Um, Luther left. So he told me how to go. If he'd have told you to go to a different club, would, would you have gone to a different Absolutely. club? Absolutely. Because we trusted him so much and he would have said, this is the club for you. And the interesting thing about it is that Graham knew, because of course back then you would know what other clubs are like. Yeah. 
And for a young player to go to Liverpool is not a good idea at that particular time because the culture of being left to your own devices, drinking, going mm. out. A, but he knew at 23 years old, I because I remember when I scored the goal in Brazil and he knew I wanted to go to Italy. So when Luther went to Italy because of the way they played and it's a bit like the Premier League, like everybody wanted to go, he said, Italy's not for you. And now is not the right time for you. You're 20 years old. You're not, you're not experienced enough to then mm. go to play for AC Milan or whatever Luther did. And then when I got to 23, three more years of international football experience, he said, now is the time for you to go. And Liverpool is a club for you. As much as he would have known that Liverpool, in terms of, he would have sent me there as a 17-year-old because he knows that for a 17-year-old boy to get into the, into the trappings of being at a big club like that, whereby Liverpool is a unique club. A lot of clubs are like that. But Liverpool was more new, unique in that the coaches, they don't coach you. They don't tell you what to do. You've got to be experienced enough to work it out yourself. That was Liverpool's mantra. The coaches used to go, what's going on at halftime? I know, but I'm not telling you. Work it out yourself. Now, if you don't have that experience to work it out yourself, what then happens? But he knew at that time that as much as from a disciplinary discipline point of view um, and, and, and being left to your own devices, they're not going to coach you, they're not going to tell you what to do, maybe Liverpool is in the club. But he said to me that now, if you're experienced, the stage of your career, Liverpool is a club for you. Now, Alex Ferguson said about Manchester United that he would have liked to have signed me. And had I been a 17, 18-year-old, probably Alex Ferguson and Manchester United, because he was very strict, would have been the club. Mm. But at 23... And Liverpool being a better club at that particular time yeah. in the mid-80s. And you probably yeah. wouldn't have won as much. Well, well, I suppose that Manchester United won their stuff a little bit later, later on, on, right? Yeah, later on. But more more interestingly, it's more for the fact that Graham Taylor knew that had I been a 17-year-old John Barnes in 1987, and I'm going to leave Watford, he would say to me, go to Manchester United mm. with Alex Ferguson because he'll look after you yeah. in terms of nurturing and bringing you up to what you did with Beckham and Giggs and stuff like that. Whereas a 23-year-old John Barnes at the stage of my career, Liverpool being the better club at the time, but also we understood the, the, the trappings and the failings that they may have for a young player, says that at 23 years old, Liverpool is the club for you. Did you walk into a dressing room full of icons? Were they... I walked into a dressing room full of humble people. They were winning the European Cup. They were fantastic. They were, they were icons, if you want to look at it that way. But they also understood that the most important thing is the team. Because what I always felt, if you look at Liverpool, for example, and we talk about Dalglish and Rush being the stars who scored all the goals, from the Sammy Lees to the Alan Kennedys to the Terry McDermott's. I played for England with them when I played for Watford. Mm-hmm. But they were, they were on the bench. They weren't in the first team. They, they were substitutes. And it's like, you've got Brian Robson, Glenn Hoddle, main players for England. But these are Liverpool players. They're winning the league in the European Cup, but they're not playing for England. How can that happen? Because when you go to Liverpool, the most important thing is the team and the character. So you don't need to be the best players, but mm. you need to have the best character. And that's what Liverpool did, looked at your character. So when you talk about icons, yes, they were icons because they were winning the European Cup. But when you talk to them in terms of the people they are, the recognition of the team being the most important thing, I felt I played on a Bill Shankly because Bill Shankly spoke about the relationship of the Liverpool family, which is the fans, the community, the city mm. itself, that harmony, that, that humility you have to have. And that's what Liverpool was. They were winning everything. And I always use the example of players who played in Glenn Hoddle, greatest English player ever as far as I'm concerned, technically. He could never have played for Liverpool. Not that he's worse or better, but he's a different character. Different, yeah. You know, and players who played for clubs whereby it's a bit of a celebrity kind of a situation. Liverpool are winning the European Cup, but the players couldn't walk around like celebrities in Liverpool. That season, that 87-88 season, you won the league, you were only defeated twice throughout the season. You were on that incredible run and that sort of quartet of you, you know, Barnes, Beardsley, Houghton, Aldridge, you were, you were magical for fans to watch you know there was it was such an exciting time here's a quote from Tom Finney this was after a 5-0 victory against uh, Nottingham Forest late in the season and he said you you couldn't see it bettered anywhere not even Brazil that's my favourite game the Nottingham Forest game because once again I wasn't man in the match I don't even think I scored but we need to talk about a, 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 a game of quality 
And when I talk, when I say that, what I mean by that is that I've played in games where we have been better for maybe 50 minutes, but as a 90 minute performance, and, and the most pleasing thing about the performance, it was a humble performance. By that, I mean, in the 89th minute, when we were 5-0 up, if a player wanted to over-elaborate or showboat or show off, the fans would have said, Ole, try and not make somebody, try and do something special. But we didn't do that. For 90 minutes, the 90th minute, if you had to make a simple pass, you had to make a tackle, you had to chase back, that's what you do. And that's what football is, because I always said, you've learned it for the Graham Taylor and Watford, you don't play the occasion, you play the game. You play the game as if it's nil-nil, even if you're winning 5-0. That year, with, as you mentioned myself, Peter... It was strange because I mentioned Russian Dalglish and that was what Liverpool was. Or Liverpool was always been about the team. But from the outside looking in, it's always Russian Dalglish are the ones who are going to score the goals. Now, Russia has gone to Juventus. Dalglish is re- retired. How is Barnes and Beardsley going to fill and, and all just going to fill those shoes? But what Liverpool did, because how can John Barnes be a Liverpool player? Watford play a long ball game. How can I fit into what Liverpool want? The best thing about Liverpool, they don't coach you. They don't tell you what to do, but they watch you for a period of time. And they look at your character and they look and say, I see something in you that you can come and play here, even if you don't see it yourself. Because John Barnes playing for Watford with Graham Taylor, the way they play, is complete opposite to the way Liverpool play. But Liverpool knew I could fit in. They knew Peter Beardsley could fit in. So the first week in training, when we got started to train together, it was as if we played together all our lives. That's not going to happen with young players who've got to be coached and got to be... Mm-hmm. So it was a new Liverpool team. It was an exciting Liverpool team because Liverpool were like a machine, rushing down to score. Now we're playing a flamboyant style of football. And interestingly, when people talk to me about that team I played in in 88 and then the Liverpool team of 78, for example, with Dark Leash and Sunis and people like that, and I say, our team was more flamboyant than their team. We probably played more attractive football, but their team would not have lost 2-0 at home to Arsenal to lose the league on the last game of the season. <laughs> so when you talk about, you know, which is the best team, yeah. it depends on what kind. If you want to talk about excitement, yes, but if you want to talk about machine-like, so. But, um, yeah, it was uh, interesting how everything came together from the first, I have to say, not the first match, from the first two weeks in training, it was if we played together all our lives. This is the Offside Rule from Money Knees Media. You also experienced quite a well-known incident of racism and there's that iconic picture where a banana skin had been thrown on the pitch and you backheeled it. How how commonplace was that? I just, I just want to kind of set the scene for what it was like at that time for you, particularly if we've got younger listeners as well. Was that an unusual incident? Well, first of all, I have to tell you, I do not remember doing that at all. Obviously, bananas were coming on the field all the time at West Ham and places and kick it off. And someone happened to have... Listen, we, the photographer did well to capture that yeah. picture. But you could have gone to any matches and then that would have happened all the so time. So you've answered my question there <laughs> yeah, look, by saying, look, course, it happened all the time. what actually happened was because this is now 1987 or 88, it's Liverpool versus Everton, the biggest game in English football because Everton were the champions and we're both, you know, the two top teams. From 1981 when I played for Watford, that was happening when we played at West Ham, Millwall. That, that happened mm. all the time. Now, because it's high profile, it was then brought to the, to the, to the, to the attention of the public. Mm. Whereas that was happening from 1981. So this was just a, a, a general feature of football. For football fans, I felt it was more difficult for them because black football fans had to get a bus and go to the game. And I always felt, what I've happened to me, I'm getting on a coach, I'm going home. Nothing's going to happen to me. So I always felt either in society or at football stadiums for the fans, that was more important for us to tackle. Yes, on the pitch, fine. But, um, but, 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 but interestingly, I've always looked at it in this way, which probably helped me because I'm a, from an educated, middle-class Jamaican family whose family started the first Jamaican government who are fully empowered as human beings. So when I've come to England, living in Golders Green, living in Highgate. I've lived in Mayfair for the last six months because that's where the Jamaican High Commission was. And I stopped by the police running home from Hyde Park to Mayfair to get fit when I was 17. And they could never disenfranchise me. I never felt, I never felt 
in terms of you know how 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 terrible it is because I'm, I'm a I never experienced it before and because I was funny empowered and I I would always use the example of someone like Ian Ryan for example who would have growing up been harassed and his family may have been discriminated against I never went through that and particularly the way I felt I remember playing at West Ham and they would shout racist abuse at me and I would be turning around and thinking these people can't be talking about me because the person I'm describing is definitely not me so it never affected me never affected me now it's not right it's not wrong everybody has to deal with it in their own way and I have no issue back then with players who would kick and fight and get sent off and scream because they feel that by being called the N-word is disenfranchising them and making feel less than human because it never made me feel less than human because I know that person describing is not me. So it never, it never bothered me. Now, people even to this day say, oh, you know, it must have been hard for you. I said, it wasn't hard for me because it never affected me. And when they say, that's it, keep your chin up, that's it, that's the spirit to have. I go, no, that's not the spirit to have because that's, that's how I felt. So, and I'm not saying this is right for everybody because you have to do what's right for you. You have to do what's right for you. So, and the bad thing about it is that that is the attitude that people, if you wanted to fight against it, and I know so many black footballers who are lost to the game of football because they wouldn't put up with it. And if you didn't put up with it and you kicked and fought, even your teammates in training, it happened, then you get kicked out of the club and you never made it as a professional. So, yeah, so, so what's the more beneficial message? Is it putting up with it and remaining in the game so that people get used to seeing black faces well, within the game or, well, or, or, or is it kicking and well, screaming against all, it? Well, first of all, you have to do what's right for you. Yeah. Yeah? I would never, ever, I would never, ever do what didn't come naturally to me. And if it came naturally to kick and scream and fight, that's what I would do. So there's no right or wrong way because, first of all, you are an individual. But in terms of the, the A, the protocol or the solution to the problem, and we're going through that now when players are now told zero tolerance. Now, the problem you have with that is I was always advocating, and while I would never tell anyone what to do, and if people I would support you if I want to walk off the field, I would never do that. I don't think, that, I don't think it's the right thing to do. However, now, now we've come full circle, we've been talked, zero tolerance, with, that's what we're going to do. You open yourself up to a lot of abuses with that. And I'm not accusing anybody of anything. However, there are five instances whereby players have walked off the pitch for racial abuse in the last year, and they've not gone back on the pitch, and they happen to have been losing three or four nil. And there are times when players have not walked off the pitch when they're winning four nil because of racist abuse, because they didn't want the races to win. So a lot of people may be using it expediently, depending on whether they're winning and losing. And the most high-profile case happened last a couple of weeks ago with England against Bulgaria. And I said, I'm not an advocate for walking off the pitch, but if you decide that's what you're going to do, then you do it. So my question is, why didn't they do it? Because they did it for the first two times in the first half. In the second half, it was happening again, and they chose not to walk off the pitch. And they, and they were winning 3 used protocol, didn't they, as the... No, they were lose- the protocol was, if it happens again, mm-hmm. the game's the ab- abandoned. And if the referee's not going to abandon the game, the players have a right to walk off the pitch. And they discussed it at half-time. Why didn't they walk off the pitch? Mm. And it continued. Well, that was a team decision, wasn't it? But I thought we were told that we're going to walk yeah. off the pitch. So now, there's inconsistencies now, now, there. And the inconsistencies may be coincidental. And if they were losing 3-0, what would they have done? Now, I'm not, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but I'm gonna, I've given you f- examples and can give you five examples of when the, they have walked off the pitch. And in the, five example, in the three examples of them walking off the pitch, the three teams were losing. The two examples of them not walking off the pitch is when they were winning. So how serious are they in this fight against racism? So you're saying that it's basically subjective? It is not only subjective. I'm questioning the authenticity of why they're doing it in the first place. Because if we're told, and this is what we were told, that we are going to walk off the pitch with any racist abuse. And for me, then to criticise the referee, to criticise UEFA, to criticise Bulgaria for the £60,000 paltry fine 
because, of course, a 60,000-pound fine is nothing. They have to be kicked out of the tournament. You had an opportunity to make a statement, and the biggest statement is we're leaving this pitch because this is wrong. We're winning 3-0, but we're going to leave the pitch. Now, what you leave yourself open for is that you leave the pitch winning 3-0, and UEFA don't award you the game. They may say, well, the racism wasn't that bad. It shouldn't have walked off the pitch, so therefore you're not going to be awarded the game. Mm. If they're really in this fight, they would take that chance. I know you've spoken a lot about how racism is a societal issue and that it's not necessarily about individual punishments for fans being banned from stadiums, being barred from games or fines for teams. But actually, it's not about an individual thing or an individual club. It is. It stems further back. That's annoyed a lot of journalists, hasn't it? You can read tons of stuff on the internet and there are specific incidents that they cite Bernardo Silva tweeting a picture of a caricature which is from a Spanish um, chocolate-covered nut company and it's a black character, sort of cartoon baby with big red lips. And he tweets that and says it looks like Benjamin Mendy, his teammate, and maybe doesn't know what he's doing, probably doesn't know what he's doing, but people get very angry about it. One second, alongside 99.9% of us until we see the history behind it. Yes. Then we can retrospectively go, oh, isn't that terrible? So that, (laughs) you would say is unconscious bias. He's not intending... That isn't, that isn't even unconscious bias. And I'll tell you why. What is I'll it? I'll tell you why that even is an unconscious bias. Because he's in an image that he thinks looks like Benjamin Mendy. Now, regardless of whether we think it looks like Benjamin Mendy or not, he thinks it looks like Benjamin Mendy. Why is that, why is that unconscious, un- unconsciously racist? Because if you see an image of someone who looks like him... So, what they actually say, and I would love to have going as his lawyer, I could have got him off that. Easily. I could have got him off that. What it actually says, kick it out, is that you can't show a representation yeah, of anyone's race, color, or ethnicity. So, he's not showing a representation of anyone's race because Benjamin uh, Mendy is a black human being and a sweet is not a race. So, that's not, a, that's not comparing any racial stereotype because a, a, a peanut is not a race of, of, of a person and it's no ethnicity. But the caricature was. The, car- the caricature is a sweet of something that he thinks is an image, there is absolutely nothing wrong with making representation of race, color, or ethnicity. If you make a negative representation, that's when it's a, that's when it can be punished. But that's not a negative representation because you cannot compare. And I remember Darren Lewis we had an argument on the on the thing. And I'm, anyway, but he said that he's sick of seeing black people shown in a negative or a less than human form. Now, showing a picture of Benjamin Mendy and a sweet is not showing a less than human form. You cannot compare a human being with a sweet. It's not saying that I am superior to a sweet. And this is why this is very important for us to, to discuss and to debate because what we have to get away from is this negative image of black skin and big lips. I'm going to say something which is completely shocking and people wouldn't even believe that. You know, some black people have got black skin and big lips. Can you believe that? Because, of course, when you see an image of that, people are shocked and horrified because black people do not look like that. I understand the legacy of history and slavery, history of colonialism and slavery. Yeah, and also I've, we've been programmed to think that I've read. think yeah, that, that gollywogs are wrong. Yeah, but, forget, but okay, well, maybe if you want to program to think gollywogs are wrong, but that's not a gollywog. If you show a gollywog on Benjamin Mendy, that's racist. You have to take everything by its own merits. So he's just looked at this sweet. He thinks it looks like him. Now, if you then want to go back to the history of it and then show that it's these sweets running around the jungle going ooga booga and a white hand comes down, if he had tweeted that, that's racist. But what it he showed, means... he showed a sweet and he showed someone who thinks yeah. looks like him. And the brand, Congitos, I think it's pronounced, means little people from the Congo. And that's obviously when you started to then look into it further, it then, well, okay, you can understand why 
why people may have disagreed with it and kicked off with it. But what you're saying is take right. all that side away. Right. Don't, look into, he, it. Don't it, look into it. Yeah. I'll tell you what would have been racist. What would have been racist if he showed Carl Walker and that's sweet. Because Carl Walker's black, but he doesn't look nothing like that sweet. And that the old thing about they all look alike, then of course that for me would be racist. Yeah. However, if he feels that that's what he looks like, mm-hmm. I don't really see an issue with that. And I use Kante as an example. And I said, had they shown, suppose Mars Bar comes to Canton and said, we want to do a PR promotion with you. We're going to pay you 20 million pounds. You're going to be the face of this little Mars Bar suite that we're going to do. So we're going to draw a little cartoon. How do you think they're going to draw that cartoon? A big round head, black face and big lips. So what, he doesn't look like that? That's what he looks like. Now, unfortunately, what we then do is we will accept that because it looks like Kante, but we elevate Kante out of blackness. So because it looks like Kante... We elevate him out of black to say that's okay, but he showed a generic picture of a black man who nobody knows about, and we're going to say that that's racist. Mm. And that is the conversation I want to have now. We have to get away from this idea of the image of a jet black man with big lips being negative. You've got an image of a black man walking down the street in a full bowler hat, three-piece suit, in the city with a briefcase, jet black, thin lips, not an issue, not a problem. Put big lips on him, we're going to say it's racist. Why? Do black men not have big lips? And that's what we have to get away, even from our own community. I understand from a white perspective, and you may then feel that you're helping us by going. And if I say to, if I say to white journalists and white reporters, why do you see that as, as, as offensive? Because they say that, oh, because the black community is as, as offensive. I say, put them aside. Do you see that as an offensive? Mm-hmm. And they will say, well, no. So if they don't see it as offensive, are they racist? Here's one for you. Do you mind being called up by any media association going whenever there's a racism story? I, well, I'm, I, I, I do because what happens is as I'm speaking to you now and people listen to everything I say, they will, listen, they will understand what I'm talking about. Whereas when you just take little snippets of what I say, people are calling me a racist apologist. Uh, the guy called Jonathan Liu who works for the, I don't know, the, whatever he is, and he did this thing in the Independent, but he also did this in a new statement saying that John Barnes is making nobody accountable. I say I'm making everybody accountable, as you have heard today, if you listen to what I say. Because when I say that Liam Neeson and Peter Beardsley aren't like anyone else, he then interprets that as that. What I'm saying is that they're like everybody else because everybody's unconsciously racist. And until we're going to admit it, own up to it, understand why we are because of what life has shown us historically, we will not move on. But when you take snippets of what I say, as they do, then they can twist it. Very much like the whole Liam Neeson thing, which is absolutely ridiculous. I'll tell you what I heard Liam Neeson say. First of all, I say to people, what question was Liam Neeson asked? I don't know. He said he wanted to kill black people. Listen to the whole thing. Listen to what he was asked. Liam Neeson was asked, has vengeance had any impact on your life? This is what he said. Vengeance has had a negative, horrible impact on my life. That's the first thing he said. How did that have an impact on your life? When my cousin was raped and it was a black man, I wanted to kill. I was going around for a week, wanted to kill any black man. That's what we heard. Looking to kill any black man. Looking to kill a black man. That's what he said. So I said to people, what did Liam Neeson say? He said he wants to kill a black man, any black man. Is that what he said? First of all, he was asked, has vengeance had a negative impact on his life? He said, vengeance had a negative impact on my life. This is what I wanted to do. Then after one week, I was disgusted and horrified with the way I felt. And I went to the priest to get help. Does anybody know that? No, he said he wanted to kill a black man. Here, he's talking about how negative that feeling that he had inside him, which is the important thing. Forget about And he said, if it was going to be a Chinese man or if it was going to be an Englishman or if it was going to be a whatever, I would want to kill any of that person. But black people, he said he was a black man. End of story. Mm-hmm. Now, the important thing in this is understanding. If you look at, if, 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 you, if you analyze what he actually said, he's in Northern Ireland in 1970 when this happened. 
there are no black people even where he lives. So as much as he's telling a story, I'm going around looking for black people, he's not finding anybody because there are no black people in Northern Ireland and the chances are even finding one. So it's a nice story to tell about how terrible he felt about himself. So his, in his mind, he's not talking about the fact that I wanted to get a black man. He's talking about how negative I felt that feeling of vengeance. And that is why I don't judge people in those situations because I do not know how I would feel in that situation. Well, I think, I think everyone has their own experiences. And I'm going to move this on a little bit. But, but what I'm going to say is for those journalists that have laid into you for... Um, I'm, I'm doing a YouTube. I'm going to call all of them. Don't worry. Yeah. I'll mention all of them. You, might, you are going to get a mention as well. well it's okay. You have to respect that they've based what they think on their experiences and what they also think. And so, you know, rather than calling you out or you calling them out, I suppose we, 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 we to a certain point, have to respect how, as a journalist, whoever that journalist is, that's how they feel. What I totally agree with you on is that we're not getting the full story. We need to be really careful when we're taking sound bites. Because you are such a voice when there are racism stories in the media and in football, and because there are increasing amounts of reporting and increasing incidents, does that get in the way of your other work? Does that, does that mean that you're so well-known for your opinions on racism that that's distracting from who you are, what you've achieved, and what your other skills are? Well... W- what I've achieved will, will, will always be the same. Mm. I won't achieve any more, any less based on what people... People's peop- perception of you. People's perception of me. What I've achieved as a footballer is exactly the same. That's not going to change. But what gets to me is when people want to dip their toe in and talk about, oh, that's terrible. And then when I want to have this conversation, this conversation like that but needs to be carried on. Two days later, oh, no, that's all news now. So I phone up Sky and say, can we talk about this? Well, that was a couple of days ago. That's a couple of days ago. We've moved on from that now. Let's talk about something else. Have you got a manifesto, John? Um, not yet. No, because they're all lies. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's not coming out. I'm actually writing a book on this. Okay. I've finished it. My sister's just editing it now. Let's go on to Liverpool and what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Really exciting time at the club. Absolutely. Would you have envisaged that it would be three decades, 30 years before potentially Liverpool lift the league trophy again well not in 1991 after we won it in 1990 not in 1992 probably up until 1996 no but you wouldn't have envisaged that but of course maybe three four five six seven years ago i would have envisaged it in fact three four five six seven years ago i wouldn't have envisaged that they would be got a chance of winning it now so of course you can't just go back to 1990 and say can you believe would you have thought then that it would be 90 years of course not of course not. And that's why Man United haven't won it for five years. And they say, we won't, won't be 30 years till we win it, but it very well could be because we don't know what the future holds. However, we're in a place now whereby we've got an opportunity to win it. And if we don't win it, is that failure? We won the European Cup last year, Champions League, and we finished second and we lost one game. We cannot improve on that. If we win the league this year on 90 points, is that a better year than finishing second on 97 points? It is in terms of us winning the league, but that would have meant that Manchester City underachieved and did worse. Mm. So that's why I say last year cannot be beaten. And of course, I'll be happy to win the league on 90 points this year. But I won't say that this is a better season than last season if we lose three games and win the league on 90 points. So it's an exciting time because we have now given Jürgen the support. We trust him and we always have. And if you trust and you support and you have that harmony and togetherness, the fans, the Liverpool family or football family, generally speaking, you can succeed. Because Liverpool haven't got better players than Manchester United or Arsenal or Tottenham. What they have, more harmony, more belief, togetherness, belief in the manager. Because... 
Jurgen's record wasn't better than Brendan's for the first two years. But because we trusted him and we believed in him, we allowed him to manage. We allowed him to drop Daniel Sturridge. We allowed him to drop Sacco. Brendan would have wanted to do the same thing, but he couldn't because the fans didn't trust him. And you look at what a good Brendan, manager Brendan is now. Look at him at Celtic, look at him at Leicester. We did him a disservice. I'm glad that Jurgen's here. But had we supported Brendan more, I'm very sure he could have done the same thing. What could stop Liverpool from winning the league this season? Football. Because football, you lose matches. Football, you win matches. That's what happens. Is there any weakness there for you? Well, if two other other strikers get injured, Man City have got a bigger squad. And to be fair to Man City, they had three other defenders out, which is why they've lost three matches. They would have been up there. So injuries can play a part in it. What won't stop Liverpool is complacency. What won't stop them is determination. What won't stop them is a belief and a togetherness. Because that is how they play. That is how Jurgen has them playing. That's how the fans... So... um, when Leicester won the league, Leicester never overachieved. It's impossible. It is impossible in life to overachieve. You can maximize your potential. You can't do any more. You can underachieve. And when Leicester won the league, they maximized the potential and other teams underachieved. Liverpool is maximizing the potential they have. Because if you ask yourself, if all the top teams maximize their potential, who would win the league? Man City. Who would come second? Man United. Who would come third? Tottenham or Liverpool. But because they don't maximize their potential, that's what happened. Because we haven't got necessarily better players than anybody else, but we have that togetherness and that belief. So, and that's what will continue under Jurgen. So we won't all of a sudden dip in form. If we get bad injuries, yes, but he has us playing in that way. So fortunately for us, Man City are on the way, the, the team that they are. But um, this year could be our year. Do you think that Liverpool could get more than the league this year? Well, first of all, the league is always the most important thing. Always. And when people talk about, we're going to have a good cup run. We, 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 we fancy our chances in the FA Cup, the Champions League. You can't because you don't know who you're going to play. Now in the league, you know every team you're going to play, so you can say this is what we're going to do. So if in the FA Cup we're going to have a good cup run, but the first third round Man City away, then Man United away, then Arsenal, are you going to win all those matches? So when fans say I fancy us for a good cup run, you can't say that because you don't know who you're going to play. Even in the Champions League, you can't say that because no matter how good you are, it's a one-off game in a quarterfinals that you lose, you go out. So to then say, I think we're going to, what you, what you should do, like in the World Cup and all these competitions, when you look at the league in the Champions League group stages, you know we're going to go through. And then depending on who we get in the next round, and because of the seeding, you know you're going to get an easier group. You can, but once you get to the semi-final, can you guarantee that you're going to beat Real Madrid and Barcelona and Bayern Munich? You can't. So, but what you should be able to guarantee is performances in the league or you know who you're going to play. So as to whether I fancy them in, in, in any other trophy, I know they'll be competitive in every game they play. But to then say, I think we're going to do one in the FA Cup as opposed to the League Cup or the Champions League, not a clue. But I know we'll do one in the league. I'm going to have to wrap it up there because you've been talking for a long time. But I do what, like to but, talk. But what a good chat. Are you always going to stay in this area? John? Oh, yeah. My kids are from here. I love it in this area. Liverpool's across the road. So London's two hours away. You go down to London, takes you. Two hours on a train. I do a lot of work in London. so But I like the quiet life. If you know Hesel Little Village here, a few shops, Costa, Tesco's down the road. I walk around, people leave you alone. You know, they say hello or whatever. So <laughs> this is me now. Thank you for listening to this week's Offside Rule exclusive. To hear more like this, just go to available episodes where you can hear from the likes of former England managers Sven Joran Eriksson, former Brighton boss Chris Hewton and many, many more. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Offside Rule Pod and subscribe so you can be the first to hear our brand new episode. The Offside Rule is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com.
Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.